Hello, my fellow true crime junkies. My name's Andrew, and welcome to Confused and Homicidal. Hi, welcome back, or welcome if you're new. This is another going to be a solo sode. Tori is not available to record at the moment, which is totally, totally fine. This is just an episode to cool off after some more more severe cases. So this one's just kind of a chiller episode. It doesn't really, it's not super dark, but I think it will be a lot of fun. So without further ado, this case, or what we're going to be talking about today is called the Eastern State Penitentiary. It is said to be one of the most haunted places in America. So we're going to go over the history a little bit, how it was formed, who built it, and then some of the major offense, like some of the major violence and riots, and all of that good stuff. And then we'll go into the hauntings, and we'll, we'll ex- I will explain why, why it is so haunted. Because... Trust me, this one, it has a lot in it. I was expecting there to, like, not be that much of, like, hauntings and stuff, but there honestly is a lot, and it's throughout the entire place. So, stay tuned. I'm sure it will be great. In 1787, Dr. Benjamin Rush formed the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. This was the first prison reform group in the world, and this penitentiary became the brainchild of this society. They had a large agenda, and they believed that everyone had good in them, and they were building this penitentiary, they had these ideas for this penitentiary just to kind of like coax the, the good out of them. This was going to be a different form of confinement called the Pennsylvania system, also known as the separate system. It's designed to bring out the, quote, inner light, and it brought about a new form of reintegration. This system was very much unlike the overcrowded and disease-riddled prisons of its time. Another hope was that they could be able to get away from more cruel punishments, such as the pillory, whipping, and the stocks. And this was considered to be the first true penitentiary. The system was meant to lead inmates to true penitence and to successfully rehabilitate them and send them into society as functioning citizens. They did this through means of 24-hour isolation, and the only light that they had is a small skylight in their cells. They used religious instruction, job training, and solitary time as a, quote, humane approach to reform. And the hope was that the isolation would keep them away from bad influences. So at this point, I don't know. It seems like they have good ideas, good intentions. I don't know if the way that they're doing it is going to be great, because I know I need to be around people, and it drives me nuts when I when I can't see people when I'm in solitary like that when I'm alone 
So I feel like this would do more me more harm than good, but let's see. Let's see if it helps other people. So the building of the facility. There was actually a contest to see whose design for the penitentiary was the best. And young Englishman John Haviland actually won. He had very ambitious plans, especially for that time period, and he actually won $100 for winning, which is pretty cool. I, I think that's a really cool idea to kind of, you know, make make a contest that way we get multiple designs, and then you can choose which is the best instead of just a single design that you might not think is the best and you're stuck with that one person, but it, I don't know, it just sounded kind of fun. So that was kind of cool. So after Haviland's design won, the state purchased 12 acres of land and appropriated $800,000 for construction. That's a lot of money. I looked it up and did the conversion rates. That's over $15 million for today, which in today's money, which doesn't seem like that much, but it was a lot at the time. It, I mean, it's still a fair amount today. Construction officially started in 1922, and in sev seven years later, in 1829, the prison was officially opened. Charles Williams arrived at the Eastern State Penitentiary as inmate number one. He was a poor farmer that was sentenced to two years for stealing a horse, and this event was officially the grand opening of the Eastern State Penitentiary. Because of this, it attracted tons of attention, huge, huge crowds, and most of this was because of the grand architecture of the design. It was a radial plan, which basically means it's a, a circular plan that emanated from a singular point. So the best way to imagine this is imagine a wagon wheel. It's kind of a big circle on the outside and a small circle on the inside, and all of the spokes are coming out from that small circle on the inside. It was just like that, except the outside was not a wheel. It was, in fact, a big square or rectangular. But it was, it was really cool designs. Um, and there, we're actually going to have pictures of it up on our social medias, which we will... I'll talk about that at the end of the episode where you can go and find it. But it's a really cool design, and I thought it was great. But this also allowed for guards to monitor the entire prison from just one central hub in the middle, which I thought was really cool. It had grand architecture, but it also had more modern amenities, such as heating and indoor plumbing, while at this time, most other people especially noted that the president was still chucking his pee out the window, and so it was just great leaps and in innovation, and it was just really cool. So 14 years after construction began, in 1836, construction of the original design for the penitentiary is officially complete. There are seven cell blocks in total, and this was meant to fulfill the need for 250 prisoners. There were 256 cells just in case, but there was only a need for 250 prisoners at that time. The outer walls were 30 feet high and half a mile long. They were 8 feet thick, and they also went to 10 feet underground. These outer walls were made from Wissahawken schist and gneiss from local quarries. 
At the time, the penitentiary was an isol- was very isolated. It was built on a hill in Francisville, which was two miles out of Philadelphia city proper at the time. Um, that eventually later changed as Philadelphia grew and grew around the penitentiary and actually kind of swallowed the penitentiary and just went around it. But it was this penitentiary was all was built on what used to be a cherry orchard, and it, this was a very purposeful design because you could see the penitentiary for miles and miles around. The neo-gothic design of the facade was meant to inspire fear in the hearts of those that could see it. It was designed to be a crime deterrent. This was not the place that you wanted to be, and they wanted to stop crime, obviously. So it was designed to remind immigrants of harsh punishments that happened back in European jail systems, because around this time, this area was a lot of immigrants. And so it was built to kind of look like a castle. And in fact, it actually had battlements and arrow slits, both of which were just a facade and actually not functioning. But it just went to goes to show the lengths that they went to try to remind them of the the European system that they came from, which was a very, very harsh system of cruel, cruel punishments. And this is what they were trying to avoid with this penitentiary, but they were also trying to deter crime at this point. While it may have looked very scary from the outside, the inside was designed to rehabilitate the inmates. The cells were cathedral barrel vaulted. They had cathedral barrel vaulted cells and also vaulted corridor ceilings. So basically what that means is that the ceilings were rounded and high instead of like the low cramped spaces that most other jails at that time were used to. This architecture was meant to conjure thoughts of second chances and of forgiveness. It was meant to be very, uh, it was meant to give the prisoner and the inmates a very positive, uplifting, hopeful feeling. And the, the cells also had a skylight as their only source of light to the room. To get to the main corridor, there were small feeding holes instead of big main doors. This was mostly a security concern so that inmates could not access the, the main halls very easily. All entering and exiting from cells were from the the back of the cell and they had personal exercise yards outside back back through those doors and the feeding holes were also used to give supplies such as tools books and other things that inmates would need now here is where i don't i like the whole idea of the penitentiary and trying a new system of reformation and trying to get people to reform and actually be penitent of what they've done but this is where I don't really agree with every- I think that they caused more harm than good. Inmates were kept in solitary confinement, and there was a very, very strict silence policy in place. You could not talk, you could not hum, you could not mumble, you couldn't do anything like- And they were also kept in their cell for 23 hours hours a day. The only time that they were let out was they were only let out twice a day for 30 minute exercise session in their personal exercise yards. 
And that sounds great. They got to get out and exercise. It doesn't sound great that they're in their cell for 23 hours a day, but at least they got to exercise. It sounds great, right? Well, not quite, because in order to go out, the inmates were forced to be hooded. So they claimed, the penitentiary claimed that this was so that they wouldn't be recognized after release, but it was more than that. It was so that they the inmates would not know the layout of the prison. And there's also a picture of one of these hoods on our socials, so go check that out. It's really, really an interesting picture. It looks very crude, but it just goes to show you the very real situation that was this penitentiary. Inmates, in order to keep the strict, in order to keep the strict solitary they were never allowed to exercise at the same time as their neighbor. This was to avoid them talking, coming up with plans to escape, To it was to keep them in complete isolation and solitude no matter what. And the yards were also searched before and after exercise to ensure that no contraband of any sort or any sort of communication was allowed in. While in their cells, inmates were taught trades as a means of rehabilitation in thoughts that they could be productive citizens after release. The trades that they were taught included cobbling, weaving, and canning. And this is what they start out as, and it sounds good in that they're trying to teach them these things so that they can become great citizens once they get out, but I don't know, it's just, it's something about it doesn't rub me quite right. And they, they again, were trying to get away from the old systems of punishment, so they had new forms of punishment. They didn't have any corporal punishment, but the punishment that they did inflict was they reduced the amount of food that inmates were allowed, and also they shortened the exercise time. Those, at least, were the official forms of punishment. Off-the-record punishments, and I'll go more into these later, but there was this thing called the iron gag, the water bath, the mad chair, and sometimes they would just put you in a straitjacket, but again, I will get into that more later. Inside of the walls, within the penitentiary, within the outer walls, there was a three-story administration building, and I just kind of found this funny because when I was taking my notes, I misread something, and it, like, looking back at it, it makes no sense as to why I thought this, but at first, upon reading, I thought that the administration building was literally inside the walls, like, that it was built into the walls, but no, obviously not. It was a totally separate building that was inside, like, the four walls, but it was not literally built into the walls. So I, I found that really funny when I was going through my notes and I was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. That They weren't actually built into the walls. But this administration building included the warden's office, the intake facility, a laundry room, a kitchen, a hospital, and the warden's house. He and his wife and kids would live there, Um, which, I mean, is fine if you want that, I guess, but if I were the warden, I wouldn't want my wife and kids living there. I feel like, I feel like everyone is taught to kind of stay away from criminals, not bring them closer. So I don't know about that, but this is how it was at the time. But food was really quite a big deal at the penitentiary. They served some of the best food at the time that you could get. They had three meals a day with generous amounts of meat and vegetables. Dinners were usually consisting of beef or pork, soup, and unlimited potatoes. 
<laughs> which I just found that funny. You can you can get as many potatoes as you want. And they also had a ration of one pound of bread per day, which honestly, I think that's a lot of bread. The original design for the penitentiary was for 256 cells, which quickly became not enough room. They were consistently getting more inmates, so they needed more space. So to compensate, they turned cell blocks 4 through 7 into two stories. And then this second story was known as the gallery. And the problem with these are the gallery cells had no exercise yards, so they really, they just stayed in their cell and they had nowhere to go. And also the first floor cells underneath them, their skylights didn't work very well. So they were pretty much in the dark because you just had like the residual light that was peeking down from through a whole other room and it was, wasn't great. This penitentiary was said to be inescapable, which whenever, whenever anything says like it can't be done, it's inescapable, it's unsinkable, it's uh unbreakable, it always seems to be the exact opposite of that. It was the same in this case. It was definitely not inescapable. The first inmate to attempt to escape was named William Hamilton, and this happened in 1832. He was arrested for stealing pigs, and he somehow gained trust throughout the penitentiary, and he was actually assigned to be the warden's personal waiter. And yes, this was against the solitary confinement rules, but apparently they were, he was the exception. Apparently it was okay. And while he was there, he, for whatever reason, was left unattended while serving in the warden's house and so he saw his opportunity and he took it he ran he climbed to the third floor of the building and managed to get himself up and over the wall lowering himself down the other side and he he wasn't too smart in the head i don't think because you'd think that he got caught stealing pigs the first time you think he wouldn't do it again right but that's exactly what he went and did. He was found two weeks later, or a few, he was found a few weeks later stealing more pigs. And so he was brought back to the penitentiary. Five years later, he escaped again in 1837. Third time's the charm, right? Not quite. He again was caught stealing pigs. And so he was sent back. Cell block seven, which was completed in 1836, was the biggest cell block. It contained 68 cells per floor, and remember, this was a two-story cell block, so there were a total of 136 cells. That's just kind of a fun fact. And in 1842, this guy named Charles Dickens actually visited, and he was actually given access to the inmates as well as the prison grounds itself, and he actually wrote about his experiences in a book called American Notes. He was very critical of the system, saying, quote, The system here is rigid, strict, and hopeless solitary confinement. I believe it, in its effect, to be cruel and wrong. I hold this slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than the torture of the body. And honestly, I would kind of have to agree with him. They, they mean well, and I understand that, but I, I think I would go crazy in this sort of situation that they're being put in, and I think a lot of people did, <laughs> and, but we'll, we'll get into that. 
Charles Dickens, while he was there, he also claimed to have seen inmates with pets, such as birds and rabbits. So I was like, that's kind of cool, I guess, but I don't know why inmates would have that. Even though they had just added the second floors for the cell blocks 4 through 7, it was still a growing penitentiary, and the population was growing and growing, so new cell blocks needed to be added. In 1877, cell block 8 and 9 were actually completed. A fun fact about these cell blocks, they were actually designed by the warden at the time, and his name was Michael Cassidy. He was actually a former carpenter, and also the longest serving warden of the penitentiary's history and he did a lot of good for the penitentiary. In cell blocks 8 and 9, the cells had no exercise yards, so he built, he built them to be slightly larger. Some had two skylights, and they would actually house two inmates, contrary to the strict isolation policy. These were some of the first effects due to overcrowding. Overcrowding became becomes a huge deal in this penitentiary, and it becomes the leading cause of many of the changes that actually end up happening. Due to new needs of more inmates, they need more resources, so cell block 3 was converted into a hospital. Instead of having the hospital in the administration building like it originally had been, the cell block 3 was converted into a hospital in the 1880s. At this time, it became a more updated facility with an x-ray machine, an operating room, and even special cells for those suffering from tuberculosis. It was built to have more air circulation with a vent in the back. It was pretty cool. And in the 1920s, they even began to offer cosmetic plastic surgery, which I don't know about you, I really wouldn't trust a prison hospital for my plastic surgery, but if, I guess, if they were in there for the rest of their lives and they had no other options, I guess that would, maybe they would find the appeal in that, but I don't know, maybe that's just not for me. <laughs> but during these times, being a guard was dangerous and not an easy thing. They worked 12 plus hour days, and they worked six days a week. Not only the long work hours and the poor working environment, but they were constantly the target of the inmates' animosity. This led to extremely tense situations and a very, very rough working environment. In 1884, inmate number A1482, also known as Joseph Taylor, used a metal bar to bludgeon a guard, Michael Duran, to death. After murdering this guard, Taylor just went back to bed like nothing happened. And this is where our first known haunting comes from. This was the first reported one. People reported that they can still, to this day, hear disembodied walking and metal clanging from where he was murdered. The next thing is Robert J. McKenzie became the warden in 1908, and he served until 1923. Due to overcrowding, increased levels of aggression and violence, and other circumstances, a lot began to change under his administration. In 1911, cell block 12 was completed. This was the first three-story cell blocks. It had 40 cells a floor for a total of 120 cells. Throughout the entire prison, this came out to 885 cells. 
but these cells were very different. In order to optimize space, the ceilings were no longer vaulted, so they were flat ceilings, and they were more the cramp style that the whole rest of the American prison system was at that point in time. And these cells also did not have skylights, they just had small slits in the windows. So there was not as much light, and it was the cells were a lot smaller. And this led to, in 1913, the Pennsylvania system was abandoned, and the congregate system was adopted. So basically, there is no more solitary isolation. They're allowed to work, they're allowed to see people now, there are no more hoods when they're going out, and this really drove lots and lots and lots of change through the penitentiary. This was the also the true turning point from a true penitentiary into a very overcrowded prison. This change had to come because of not only because of the overcrowding, but how expensive solitary was and how much manpower and space it needed. There it just was not sustainable for them at this point in time. And also the type of criminal that was being housed in the penitentiary was also changed drastically. What were once petty thieves and pig stealers and stuff like that were now murderers and rapists. In 1928, out of the 1,753 inmates housed there, the most common crime was murder. Violence, corruption, and drug dealing ran rampant throughout the prison. And remember, this prison was, this penitentiary rather, was only supposed to hold 250 people. So now it has 1,753. That's like a lot. <laughs> and also due to the change from solitary to the congregate system, there needed to be some other solitary cells used for punishment. So cell block 13, which was made between 1911 and 1926, it served that purpose. It contained 10 cramped cells. The cells were 4 feet by 8 feet by 8. So very, very small cells. There was barely enough room for just a bed. They were only furnished with an iron bed and a single ventilation hole so that they could breathe. There was absolutely no light whatsoever. Oh, and there's also a radiator, which <laughs> sounds great. It's warm. But guards used to turn that up on the rate turn up radiator to make it super hot to further torture the inmates. And also, it was just an iron bed. There was no mattress of any sort. It was hard, uncomfortable, and just an awful, awful place to be. And inmates could be held here for months on end. Weeks, weeks to months, depending on what they did. And during an investigation, which this penitentiary went underwent a lot, a lot of investigations. But they were actually ordered to eliminate cell block 13. But only 9 out of the 10 were actually destroyed. <laughs> they were just like, well, we spent all of this money to build these. We're just not going to get, we're not just going to get rid of them. So they actually kept one. <laughs> I, yeah. Also made cells called dark cells. These punishment cells were made into the gallery of cell block 4. They were painted, the entire cell was painted black and had absolutely no light whatsoever. People were sent in here and they weren't 
crazy in here. Absolutely insane, because there was no light, no, no nothing, there was no, really nothing to keep their minds going to, for them to, there was no, nothing for them to do, there was no, so sensory deprivation was an intense thing in those. And during the construction of subblock 14, four more punishment cells were built into the foundation. There were no windows, it was all underground, and inmates could be held there for weeks to months. These were basically just concrete tombs, they were awful. More effects of the Pennsylvania system being removed. Inmates were now allowed to work, and even helped in building the new cell blocks. In 1927, cell block 14 was completed. It was actually designed by an inmate and made only by inmates. The inmate that designed it was actually an architect that graduated from Harvard, but apparently he decided that he was going to forge checks and that he was he chose the criminal life after that, so that's why he was in the penitentiary, but it was crazy that they had all sorts of different inmates in this penitentiary. Cell Block 14 was built by the inmates. It was three stories tall, and it added 112 more cells. The cell was not made out of the stone like the other buildings of the entire penitentiary were, but they were actually made out of reinforced concrete. And... Built underneath the, the cell block were what they're called Klondike cells. While they may sound like an ice cream treat, they definitely were not. They were the punishment cells that I was talking about a couple minutes ago. And during investigation, these Klondike cells were also discovered. And they were told not to use these anymore. But it's always questioned, did they really stop using them? That's a good question. By 1925, due to all of the construction and the need for more space, the original radial design or the original wagon wheel design was completely gone. It was like the buildings were still there, but you could not recognize it as what it once was. It had become a complex maze of buildings, cell blocks, alleyways, and yards. What was originally supposed to hold only 250 inmates now held well over 1,800 people, with a total of cell, seven cell blocks being added at this point. A famous face that was um, found in the penitentiary, his name was Leo Callahan, and he was arrested in 1920 for assault and battery with intent to kill. In July of 1923, he and five others attempted to, to escape by the East Wall. Now, there one of his friends who tried to escape. He was a carpenter named George Brown. He was really the one who made the whole plan, but Callahan tried to get credit for it. But this carpenter, Brown, he basically built a 30-foot ladder to get over the 30-foot walls, but he made it so that they were six, six different sections that were five feet each. So they could be combined and put together to make the 30-foot ladder. And honestly, this was an ingenious design. These small five, five feet sections were turned over and designed as tables, one in each person's cell. There were six, six inmates that were trying to escape and there were six sections of ladder. Well, the six of them overpowered a guard and used the ladder to scale the east wall. The inmates then found themselves on Corinth Street, where they found an idling car and they hijacked it. Did they get caught? Yes, mostly. Within six months, 
all but one of the inmates involved were found. The last two were actually found in Honolulu, Hawaii. Imagine just being in Hawaii and just seeing people come up and they're like, yep, you're going back to the penitentiary. I would hate that. Anyways, Callahan was actually never found, and that's why he became so famous out of this, because he was the only inmate to ever successfully escape and not get recaptured in Eastern State Penitentiary history. He was the only one, which is crazy, because there were hundreds and hundreds of attempts, but he was the only one that actually pulled it off. So, I mean, that's pretty cool, I guess, if you're him. In 1924, Inmate number C2559 was sentenced to life in prison for murder and admitted to the penitentiary. His name was Pep, and he was a black lab retriever. Why was there a dog in the penitentiary? Well, he was actually Governor Gifford Pinchett's dog, and he was sentenced for he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of the governor's house cat. This all came out that this was all just a publicity stunt, and the dog there was supposed to boost the morale of the prisoners, but it didn't quite work that way because Pep actually didn't really hang out with the prisoners. He actually just walked the rounds with the guards, so he was more kind of, he became the guard's dog. And later, he was actually transferred to Greaterford Penitentiary, which was a penitentiary in the area, which I, I, I don't know why you would want a dog in that situation. That just seems so cruel to me. Another famous face that was in this penitentiary, Al Capone actually served time in 1929. He was sentenced to eight months for carrying a concealed deadly weapon into a movie theater. But some, of, some people think that he arranged to spend time in the Eastern State Penitentiary to avoid pushback from the Valentine's Day Massacre that had just happened in Chicago. Capone is also have said to be haunted by James Clark. James Clark was a mob boss that Capone had put a hit out on during the Valentine's Day Massacre. It was said that he, Capone could be heard from his cell calling out. He said, Jimmy, leave me alone, get out of here, stuff like that. But Capone's cell while he was there was actually very luxurious. He was said to have a polished desk, a desk lamp, there were paintings decorating the walls, he had a radio, he had an armchair, he had a rug. It was so furnished and so nice compared to all of the other cells in there. Just some fun facts, he actually bought new uniforms for the penitentiary baseball team while he was there, and he also had his tonsils removed in the operating room, which is just a kind of a cool, cool piece of history that I thought was interesting. Capone was released on March 17th of 1930. Crowds gathered by the hundreds to see his release, but what they didn't know was that Capone had struck a deal with the warden. Earlier that day, or the day previously, he had actually been transferred to a different facility, and he was released there. He knew that there would be many people expecting his release, and he expected the crowds to gather, which they did, and he was afraid that some of his enemies who were mad at him because of the Valentine's Day Massacre might try to come out and kill him there, but he made it safely out. Yet another famous face, William Francis Sutton, was arrested in 1934 for bank robbery. He was one of the most famous bank robbers of his time, and at one point when he asked why he robbed banks, he said 
because that's where the money is, which totally makes sense, but I don't think that's what they were asking. <laughs> He's, his nicknames are the Gentleman Bandit because he was so nice in while he was robbing the banks, and also the actor because he dressed up in all sorts of disguises to try to disguise who he was, even though everyone knew who he was. And later, many of his convictions were actually overturned due to technicalities. One of his friends at the penitentiary, Frederick Tenuto, he was a mob boss who served time in the 30, 1930s and the 1940s. He was arrested in 1938, and uh, his nickname is the Angel of Death, which I feel like there's a lot of angels of deaths. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but in 1934, there was an influx of violence, and so Warden Herbert Smith went to the Board of Trustees to request more power in order to combat rising levels of violence from all of the inmates. And it was a good thing that he did this, because a riot actually broke out the next day, and it was quelled a lot easier than it did if he didn't have that extra power. And actually, the warden himself went out to bring the ringleaders, uh, who, whoever started the riot, to punishment cells. So that was kind of a cool move. But due to the rise in population and the implementation of the new congregate system, new security measures had to be taken. There was even more violence, so guards were- the current guards were replaced by former military members, and guard towers were reinforced and stocked with guns. An armory was actually put into the administrative building. This allowed easy access for the guards if needed, but it also kept guns out of the reach of the inmates. And in 1937, a Barbican was also added to the front gate. It was built out of stone, and it cost $25,000. That's a pretty, pretty hefty chunk of change. I mean, uh, uh, chunk of change. That, that one, yeah. This building replaced the big wooden door with a metal door that opened electronically. It also served as the new visiting room for guests to visit inmates. Basically what it was, it was an addition to the front gate, it reinforced the gate, and it allowed, it was just a new building that allowed for people to easily be monitored who was coming in and out, and just overall it was a great security increase for the penitentiary. In some of the old exercise yards, eating halls were now constructed so that the inmates didn't have to eat in their own cells. These places were long, narrow places filled with dining tables, and this became a huge security concern because of the guards' limited visibility within the situation. And the 15th and final cell block was finally completed in April of 1959. This place was known as Death Row, but not for its executions. There were no executions at the Eastern State Penitentiary, but it did house the most dangerous of criminals, and it also had electrically opening doors. With the new changes that were happening to the penitentiary, education became quite a large thing. In fact, a school was actually built above cell block one. Inmates were allowed to finish high school if they hadn't done that already, they were taught to study law and otherwise educate themselves. Now for another one of the big escape attempts, Clarence Clydens was a stonemason that was arrested for forgery, larceny, and bribery, and one day he saw a storage facility, and he's like, hey guard, I want that to be my cell. 
He somehow convinced the guard that he was gonna clean it up and use it as his own cell. And somehow the guards let it happen. So he moved in to that and turned it into cell number 68. While in there, he did eventually get a roommate, but this is where the escape attempt happened. So he used spoons and cans and other instruments like that to slowly create a tunnel to escape from. And he actually made a mold of his own face to put it on his bed to make it look like he was sleeping, even though he wasn't. He was making his way trying to make his way out of there and he actually also made a removable panel to hide the entrance to the tunnel so honestly that's a really ingenious idea and i don't know how it happened how he did it but so the the guards had no no idea that there was this tunnel and the tunnel when it was finished was actually surprisingly complex it went 15 feet down to the ground it was 97 feet long it actually had electrical lighting and fans in the tunnel like what <laughs> and some points were actually completely submerged by water so to get out they had to completely submerge themselves in water and some of the tighter spots were only 18 inches wide or high it was crazy but on April 3rd, 1945, the tunnel apparently had become complete, and they were ready to make their big break. This was the big escape attempt from cell 68. The people that I had just mentioned, Clarence Clydence, Frederick Tenuto, William Sutton, and nine others attempted to escape. Six of the inmates were found only hours later that day. Clydence was found five minutes after. He was two blocks away. He was not going very fast. Some some reports actually say that it was two hours later, but still, that is, it, it, honestly, that makes it worse. <laughs> Why didn't he go, like, faster somewhere else, somewhere sooner? I don't know. So, six of them were found only hours later that day. An inmate named James Grace actually turned himself back into the penitentiary because he said he was tired of running, he didn't like his life on the run, and he said he was hungry. <laughs> and the others were all found within two months of their escape. Sutton claimed to be the mastermind of this escape, but he obviously wasn't. It was Clarence Clydence, but even if he was, they all got caught. It didn't work. <laughs> so who cares who was in charge? In 1946, the quartet of Clarence William Tenuto and David Ankin were all transferred to Holmesburg Prison, which was said to be inescapable. But that was until them four got there. They tried to escape. And during this whole ordeal of them escaping, Sutton actually made it to number one on the FBI's mo most wanted list, which is completely crazy. There's there, and he was actually turned in by a barber named Arnold Schuster, and this barber sadly turned up dead shortly after. And it's rumored people think that it was Tenuto that was actually responsible for his death because this was his style and. After escaping, he was never heard from again. He was never recaptured, so it was entirely possible that this was him. Again, there was an uprising of violence, and on January 8th of 1961, the biggest riot in the history of the penitentiary happened. 
Inmate John Klautzenberg tricked a rookie cop into opening the cell of one of his friends. They were just walking back, he was being transferred, and he's like, huh, open the cell. The guard, for whatever reason, did. So together, they overpowered the guard, and after that, all hell broke loose. A series of events and chaos led to over 800 prisoners being set loose upon the prison. It was complete chaos. The prison record room was set on fire, phone lines were destroyed, and several guards were even stabbed, and many guards' uniforms were actually stolen. Inmates went into the pharmacy, they trashed the place, they stole drugs, and the situation got so bad that city police, state troopers, and the warden himself had to come up with an operation plan while the riot was actually happening. They called this operation Prison Break, and with this new plan, the riot was slowly quelled. The bad side of this was that inmates and guards were both locked up. They all got thrown into cells because everyone had no idea who was who. There were so many inmates that had stolen guards' uniforms, so they really couldn't tell who was who and when i was taking notes i was handwriting them and uh, my handwriting is not the best and so i thought it was really funny that i wrote still stolen uniforms but it totally looked like i wrote they stole unicorns yeah i'm crazy it's fine it's fine it's fine but this whole riot was actually just a really bad attempt to escape. The inmates attempting to escape were planning to steal a truck and us to escape during the chaos. But by the time that they got to the garage where the trucks were parked, the police had already arrived on scene and had quickly stopped them. Miraculously, no inmates died in this riot. Although one was severely hurt. He had a crushed skull, most likely from the strike of a guard's baton, and his head was almost completely caved in, and he was not expected to make it. His family was called that night, his last rites were read to him, but he actually held on for a little bit longer. But this riot was one of the final nails in the coffin of the Eastern State Penitentiary. It had become extremely overcrowded, there was so much violence and it was no longer an up-to-date facility, and it cost so much money to keep it operational. It was also an unwanted figure in the face of everyone surrounding it. At this point, the city completely surrounded the penitentiary, and what was once two miles out of city proper was now in the heart of the city. And with all this increased violence and all of that, it had become an increasingly more dangerous place, not only for inside the prison, but also with all of the prison escapes. It became a serious hazard for the population outside of the walls around it. While it was still an operating facility in 1965, it was actually declared a National Historic Landmark, which is pretty cool. But not long after that, in 1971, it finally closed its doors after 142 years of operation, and it was abandoned while the government tried to figure out what to do with it. Any inmates that were remaining at the penitentiary were transferred to the state correctional facility at Raiderford, and many people had lots of ideas about things that they could do with this ruined penitentiary, but none of them were actually that great. 
Lots of people have thought to make them into condos or commercial real estate, and most of these designs incorporated at least part of the original penitentiary design, but totally rebuilt the rest of it. People really liked the 30-foot wall facade, but no one could agree upon anything, so the facility ended up being abandoned for over 20 years. All the while, it became extremely deteriorated and unstable, and it was actually declared a semi-ruin. And in 1996, it was named to the National Parks Service's list of endangered landmarks. And it also was named to that list in 2000. And it was also added to the list of 100 most endangered sites lists by the World Monuments list. But was removed in 2002 due to restabilization efforts. And just a fun, fun, wholesome story. Dan McLeod was a worker that was working to restabilize the penitentiary, and he noticed that there was a population of feral cats that had taken up residence there, and so he would come and feed the cats at least three times a week. Sadly, McLeod passed away in 2003, and in 2004, artist Linda Brenner made a sculpture named Ghost Cat. It was dedicated to not only the cat population, but also the the cat man, Dan McLeod. Today's goal for the penitentiary is to preserve it as a stabilized ruin. And actually, selected areas have actually been restored. But it's too great a project to restore the entire thing, and it's way, would be way too expensive to do that. In the early 1900s, the Eastern State Penitentiary Task Force actually opened it up for occasional tours, and immediately there was an immense public demand to see the inside. Everyone wanted to see what was in there. Heck, I want to see what's in there. And officially, it opened for tours in 1990. At this point, uh, visitors were required to wear hard hats and sign waivers due to the instability of the building. And... Thankfully, you don't have to wear a hard hat or sign a waiver anymore since the ruins are restabilized. But today's tours now feature an audio tour, guided tours, as well as special events. It attracts over 150,000 visitors a year eager to see the penitentiary and to hopefully see a glimpse of a ghost. In 1991, there was actually a huge Halloween celebration in there and it has now become an annual thing that starts in late September. It is said to be one of the top 10 best haunted houses, and there is an actual reunion between those that used to be inmates, guards, or workers. In 2002, Al Capone's cell was restored to a very similar state of what it's, it used to be, and in 2006, they were using ground-penetrating radar over the entire Thing, and they actually discovered that the tunnel from the 1945 escape was actually still intact. The penitentiary had said that they filled it with sand and sealed both sides, but obviously they had not. It was still there. It was pretty much intact to this day. And in fact, there was still evidence of the fans and lights that they had used. But this place sounds like a really really cool place. They have all sorts of Halloween events, and I don't know about you, but I really love spooky season, and I really want to go there. That being said, let's get into the hauntings a little bit. Again, this was said to be one of the most haunted places in all of America, and this was probably due to the lack of contact from other humans due to the solitary confinement, 
and this caused so many people to go absolutely insane. Some people even described the Eastern State Penitentiary as hell on earth. It had a strict isolation policy, a strict silence policy, they were only bathed once every two weeks, and they were under other very harsh conditions. The punishments, as I briefly mentioned them before, but they were the iron gag, which was the most deadly torture that they used. It was an iron collar that actually clamped to your tongue, and they put, they handcuffed your hands behind your head, and like above and behind your head, and they attached that to the thing in in your mouth. So the more you struggled to move, the more it absolutely wrecked your tongue. And some people even like their tongues were completely ripped out. And there was actually one confirmed death from the iron gag, but there are so many more that are rumored to have been because of this torture. The next form of punishment was the water bath. Inmates were stripped naked and then forced to dip themselves in ice-cold water. After that, they were hung from a wall outside in winter-like conditions. They would be stuck there for days and weeks on end, and they would only get taken down once there was a layer of ice that had formed on their body. Seneca Plinley was a man that actually went underwent the ice bath treatment, and before that, he was a completely normal man. He was completely sane, but he underwent the water bath treatment and was released shortly after where he was diagnosed incurably insane. The water bath had completely broken his mind. So this form of torture completely breaks you. Speaking of completely breaking someone and making them completely insane, our next form of torture that they used was the mad chair. Inmates were usually gagged and strapped to this chair with tight leather straps. And they were straps so tightly they actually cut off circulation to many limbs and because of this a lot of arms legs fingers they actually had to be amputated off because there was so little circulation to that that it actually that tissue died they would be strapped to this chair for days with no food and many lost their minds because of this hence the name mad chair. Imagine the panic that you would feel after just a little loss of circulation. If you have pinched your arm the wrong way or whatever, there's such a panic that you have. I know I do. And our last form of torture that they would use is the straitjacket. Inmates would be put into a straitjacket and would be put in one of the punishment isolation cells where they would not be able to move. More reasons that there could be hauntings at the penitentiary. During its 142 years of operation, there were over 50 suicides and dozens of murders. There were actually over a thousand deaths in the death ledger held by the penitentiary. And wouldn't you guess, the most common causes of death were illness, suicide, and murder. Those are all things that usually contribute to hauntings. So that's even more evidence of what potentially they're, why they're, this place might be haunted. Reports date back to the 1940s, claiming to hear eerie, disembodied noises throughout the entire penitentiary. Full-body apparitions with sacks over their head roam aimlessly around. Visitors to the penitentiary claim to hear giggles, weeps, and even whispers. 
as well as disembodied footsteps, wails as in people getting tortured, kind of like screaming out for help, and orbs and streaks of light that appear and disappear, and some visitors have even claimed to hear someone calling their name or tapping them on their shoulder, followed by loud sadistic laughter, and there's totally no one there at all. Cell block doors can reportedly be heard opening and slamming closed at random where there is nobody around. There are reports of furniture getting dragged around when no one's actually moved them, and they've heard stones or large objects rolling on the roof. And also, people will randomly fall sick while visiting the penitentiary, and these are all signs of the paranormal. Each cell block also has their own their own type of haunting. Cell block 4, there are visions of ghastly faces. In cell block 6, there are often shadowy figures that can be seen darting along the walls. In cell block 7, you can hear a baby screaming. In cell block 8, in cell 49, this is where Joseph Havel killed George Kopp with a pair of scissors, and it's said that George can be heard and seen in his cell to this day. In cell block 12, it's known for echoing disembodied voices and cackling laughter. In cell block 15, which is the death row, there is whispers, screams that can be heard, and there's also a running shadowy figure. Also in one of the guard towers, a silhouette of a guard can be seen. Joseph Taylor murdered fellow inmate Michael Duran in 1884, and Duran's ghost can still be in his cell today. And lastly, the biggest paranormal occurrence of the prison. It happened to Gary Johnson. He was a locksmith that was working to get through a locked door in cell block 4, and he was part of the restoration team. This was while they were trying to restore and restabilize the penitentiary. He was removing a 140-year-old lock. And as soon as he got it off, he describes there being a powerful po force that paralyzed him. He felt an out-of-body movement. He was drawn to the s towards the cells, which was bursting with negative energy, with hundreds of anguished faces in distorted forms appearing on the walls. Some people believe that this occurrence was actually a gateway that opened for ghosts and spirits that were locked in the cell block to leave and inhabit the rest of the penitentiary. And that's it for the spooky stuff. <laughs> for my research for this case, I actually read a book, and it was really quite good. I really enjoyed it. It had a lot of pictures, which I, I always enjoy a book with pictures. So it's, it's really interesting because not only you can see like what they're talking about and it was really cool it's called eastern state penitentiary images of america and it was uh written by francis x dolan so if you're really interested by this and you want to see more of what i was just talking about you can please go read that book it's a really really fascinating book it has even more information than all of the stuff that I just spewed out at you. Um, but overall, it's really cool, and it's a really cool book. So go check that out. It's really, really quite cool. But this place really sounds cool, and I really want to go and visit it at some point. Too bad I don't live closer to there, or else I totally would go and see it out. But they still have tours, so hopefully I'll be able to go there at some point. And maybe, who knows, maybe I'll even see a ghost of... of maybe I'll even have a, a ghastly experience. Who knows? 
All right, well, that's all I have for today. I really hope you enjoyed that. I know I had tons of fun researching this and putting it all together for you guys. So, that being said, I want to know if you guys believe in ghosts or not. Or if you, I don't want to say, or if you're like me who just thinks that they're fun, because I think ghosts are fun. I don't know if I entirely believe in them or not. I'm not sure. I, I really don't know. I haven't really had uh, an experience like that before, so I have no room to say that for sure yes or for sure no but i want to know what you guys think so you can email us at cnhpod at gmail.com you can also just email us let us know anything you we want to know what what you guys are thinking if you have case suggestions please write them there we we are completely open to case suggestions or if you just want to start a conversation, please, where we will respond. We are happy to do that. We also have other socials where you can check out pictures of what we were just talking about. If you are more of a visual person, the, it's all there. So we have an Instagram at CNHpod. We have a Twitter at CNHpodcast. And we have a Facebook at CNHpod. And we also have a TikTok. It's at CNHpod. Again, we post pictures of new episodes, and we also do teasers for teasing what that the next episode might be. So it's a lot of fun, so go please check those out. I had tons of fun recording this episode, and I hope you guys really enjoyed it too. That's all I have for today, so thank you all for listening, and I will see you next time, I guess. So, Alright, bye!